If you've listened to Shameless before, you will know these chats are normally called in conversations, interviews with influential Australians about their lives, their careers, and what they've learned along the way. And we love doing them. But these are unusual times. And to reflect these times, we will be moving to in isolation episodes for a little while. Interviews with women and men we know and love, not from a studio, but from their bedroom and lounge rooms wearing bed socks and pajamas connected via video link. We will still be asking about their successes and failures, but also about this weird world we've found ourselves in. How are they coping? Where are they finding morsels of light? And how have their views on the world changed when day-to-day life looks nothing like it used to? Because how we respond to a tragedy says a lot about who we are. Are we optimists, pessimists, something in between? And in a search for meaning, what can a global pandemic uncover about ourselves? Hello and welcome to this In Isolation episode of Shameless with Celia Pacola. When Celia isn't winning Dancing with the Stars Australia, we thought we'd drop that in as soon as humanly possible because it's truly what Celia would want. She's busy being one of Australia's best comedians, writers, presenters and actors. Celia, along with Luke McGregor, is the brains and star behind the award-winning comedy series Rosehaven on the ABC and has appeared in Utopia and The Beautiful Lie. She regularly works with Working Dog Productions, including Have You Been Paying Attention? and has quickly become one of the most commonly requested guests on Shameless in Isolation. We don't think you'll be surprised to hear that Celia is one of the warmest and friendliest people we've had the pleasure of sitting down with. From the moment we connected via video link, she was so charming and so bright. We hope you enjoy this chat because we certainly clicked out of it feeling happier and calmer than we have in a little while. So here's Celia. Celia Pacola, welcome to Shameless in Isolation. Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> I love how you you spoke right into your mic then. We were just speaking before we recorded that you had invested in a mic because you feel like at the moment audio quality is the best way to prove yourself while everyone's in isolation. Audio quality is the new judge of status. It used to be how big or small your phone was, but now it is all about sound and I was sick of being like power played in meetings because I sounded rubbish. So I've invested in a full, it came as a kit and um, it's also got a big arm so I could hang it from the ceiling and pretend to be recording a single and getting quite bored. So (laughs) those look so cool. Every time I see someone in a video, like pull their mic down and like move it dynamically across the screen, I'm like, fuck, we'll just never get there, will we, Zara? Never. That's all right. You also have a more professional looking mic than we do. So this will be an interesting (laughs) Well, guys, what can I say? I take this seriously, all right? You guys, you're just playing at this. That's fine. But, you know, some of us treat this like a real job. Celia, we are starting in the same way at the moment, and I guess we've already started, but it is asking everyone that we're interviewing because we're doing this remotely to set the scene for us. Where are you? Where are you sitting? And where are you working from at the moment? I am in Perth. I don't know how else to describe it. I'm on the West Coast. This is not my home. I am from Melbourne. I, my dog is in Melbourne. My home is in Melbourne. My flatmate is also in Melbourne. Don't worry, my dog is not alone building a drug den or starting a fire. That's always a, what I think of if my dog is home alone. I'm like, he's doing something. Uh, no, I'm in Perth, in Fremantle, 
on the western coast of Australia in a kitchen. It's fun because Perth is two hours behind, so it's still daytime here. And I do like that I've just noticed that there's a bottle of rum just within shot over my shoulder. This is my workstation. I mean, that's that's more professional. If you um, want to take a swig while we record, that's totally A-OK as well. Celia, we start every interview as well with one question, which is what was your childhood like? But today, let's make it a little bit more specific. What were you like as a teenager? I'm talking awkward year seven, eight, nine phase in high school. Okay, nine is the worst. Year nine is the horror years. Any year nine teachers are not getting paid enough. Like that is, that's the nightmare year. So I hated high school so much, but I've thought about it a lot. And I would, I would describe it as try hard. So I hated high school, but I wasn't bullied. He, you know, I moved groups a lot and I changed genres a lot. Like I was the kid who tried to be like into hip hop and then was grungy and then was a goth and then, you know, sport, I didn't try, you know, and then was a bit of a nerd. So I just bounced around having absolutely no idea who I was. And also I lived in the country and I got on a bus for two hours every day and went to a fancy girl's grammar in the city. So I was also just generally feeling a bit out of place. I read a really interesting interview with you. I think it was a profile on the SMH like a couple of years ago. And you said as a kid, you were never like a real clown. Like you were more sensitive than a funny kid. Is that true? Oh yeah, totally. No, I was not a funny kid at all. Yeah. Mum would describe me as sensitive. But I also, I wrote a lot, I think also because I was bored. So we're in the country and I think being bored has a lot to do with me becoming quite creative because there was nothing to do. We're in the bush. And so I would sit and write by myself and do a lot of imagining. So I guess, yeah, from the outside, I looked quiet. <laughs> Just all no friends, pretty much. Sensitive and quiet is, is uh, replaced with no friends. But it's not my fault. There weren't any nearby. So it sounds like you loved drama and writing and the arts in high school. When did comedy come into the mix? Because as someone who loves drama and loves writing and adored those things in high school, making the leap to comedy seems scary. Like I can't imagine doing that. What was it about comedy that appealed to you? I didn't even know it was a job and it really didn't. It just sort of happened that way. I guess at high school, the only real example of it is, you know, when you had to do monologues, when you did drama monologues mine was the only one that was a comedy one everyone else was doing serious death monologues and I did five I wrote one about a private eye it was trying to be funny whatever Rick Mayle is my idol who sadly passed away so my I, I watched a lot of grim tales which was him telling fractured fairy tales really silly a lot of characters a lot of voices so that's my earliest idea of comedy so I loved it but I didn't know it was a job I did the Melbourne Uni Law Review, even though I did not go to Melbourne or study law, but because all the DGEN working dog guys did that and I love them, I love The Late Show. So this is not, this is just for fun. This is just because I love them. I didn't think that was a job. So mm-hmm. I wanted to be them. So I got into that and then my friends and I from uni started a theatre company and we did some sketch. So it was a little bits of comedy around the side. But what really changed it was I went on a date. I went on a first date to the Comics Lounge in Melbourne, which we chose because we just looked at the back of the newspaper. Do you ever look at the ads at the back of the newspaper and you're like, who is actually using this? Me. Because <laughs> we had no idea for a date and, and we were broke uni students. It was like comedy, seven nights a week, I'm like, sure. And we went there and there was a guy on the, on the lineup who I ended up talking to that night, yes, while I was on a date with someone else, got his number, ended up going out with him 
and he signed me up for Raw Comedy, <laughs> which was the national open mic stand-up competition without telling me. And wow. then the national final and I've kept doing it since then. So that was a very long way. <laughs> but that's really how it happened. So I had two weeks from him saying to me, I've signed you up, your gigs in two weeks. And then I just wrote my butt off because I was so scared, but I always had a writing brain. So I was like, right, I'm going to write five minutes of material that are arguably jokes. So no matter what happens, if I just say these, that's going to protect me a bit. Still not having any idea. And I wrote my first set like a play, like it had a, it had a beginning, middle and end in it, you know, and you get a light, you only get five minutes. And if you go over, you just cut off. And I remember the light going, you've got 30 seconds left, went off. And I had way more to do. And in my mind, I was like, it's not going to make sense if they don't get the ending, which is so dumb because it's jokes. So I just said it all really, really fast. I was like, and then it went, thank you, goodbye. So that was the first gig. And, yeah, got to the national finals. So my fifth gig ever was at the town hall, televised on ABC in front of a 1,000 people. And I won, I didn't win, but I won the best first time entrant. At that year, they had an extra award for the, because some people, you can enter it a few times in a row. Wow. Uh, The person who won, so in comedy, raw comedy is sort of like your your class, the people that you started with, you're like, that sort of gives you a era of the same people, colleagues of yours. And in my year, when I was in the grand final, the winner that year was Hannah Gadsby. (gasps) I did read that and I thought it must be amazing to go through the years with people like you all end up becoming incredibly successful. Like it must be quite surreal to to think about the years where you were fighting these kind of competitions out. It is so surreal just how long life is. Like the fact (laughs) like you can do so much, like it just goes on and on. Like the fact that I currently work with Working Dog blows my mind apart because when you're a kid you just don't imagine they'll still be going if you get there but of course they are like it just blows my mind that you under this umbrella of people starting and people finishing there's ages like I've been doing it for almost 15 years and I'm planning to do it for another 15 years so there's people arguably who haven't started yet who I'll be working with possibly in 20 years it's nuts but yeah it's like that's why things like raw comedy are it's really fascinating when we get to hang out and knowing who is friends with who like the group sort of before my time just before my time was like your will anderson's and your peter hellier's and your rove and that kind of stuff so wow. we were, and then my era is yeah hannah tommy little tom ballard you know there's a bunch of ann edmonds felicity ward these kind of that's our that was our sort of class but it's interesting who you come up with and who like, great thing is all these people get so famous. That was where I met Hannah at the final because she lived in Tassie at the time. And, like, the knowing how huge she is now, the memories I have of the shitty little gigs that we did together. <laughs> like, I've seen some incredible comedians eat shit. Like, it's, I love it. I love that I have these memories. Not so that she's, well, I've seen her eat shit. She's seen me eat shit many times. But it's just fun thinking about these people and where they are now and remembering the car trips the driving for five hours to some unpaid two minutes in front of three people who don't want to hear you I find it so interesting that you're talking about the generations of comedians because we really wanted to ask you about what it's like being a female comedian in 2020 I mean the comedians coming through the ranks who aspire to be just like you are probably going to have another experience do you experience sexism much still 
Look, it's weird. It's a weird thing. It's one of those weird things. And I do a bit, but not really because I'm at a, I'm luckily at a point of my career. It was much more apparent to me when I started. So it was more obvious to me, any sort of sexism stuff, when I started. Because I think when you knew, you've, you know, you're walking into rooms that are mainly men and people don't know who you are. And I had my fair share of people being like, whose girlfriend are you? That kind of stuff, just that kind of stuff, getting introduced in ways that are quite blatantly sexist, that kind of stuff. But when I was new, I was way more agitated about it. Other female comics and I started this group called the Skirt Network. We're going to change things and reached out to other people like Judith Lucy and Denise Scott and all of these other amazing women who helped us out. But they, I felt, got this overwhelming sense they were just like a bit tired of talking about it. And I was like, I don't understand why you're not mad. You don't want to do stuff. And now I've been doing it for like 15 years. I'm kind of tired of talking about it as well because you just go, I'm just getting on, you just get on with it. Like, mm. yeah, it's a thing. I don't think it's as bad, but it's easy for me to say that because I'm in a point in my career where it doesn't happen to me as much because I've got the, the history of the stuff that I've done is that kind of thing still happens a, a bit. Do I think it's changed? I yeah, think so, yeah. As I say, I'm also not spending as much time in the in the open mic rooms, which is where it was the most, where you hear the most material, offensive, awful stuff. But I think since Me Too happened, I think people are a lot more. Do you know what I found when it first when it first started to change? Weirdly, people would still do the terrible jokes, but then they'd say, "Oh, you can't say that anymore." So <laughs> oh. it actually changed. It just went not that you're allowed to say that. It sort of pushed things a bit more underground. But like me coming up, I, I found a I was, had a really strong network of other female comics who hung out and were all so different and all doing really well at the same time, but we all had such distinct, had have, still do, such distinct voices that we can all exist together. Because there was a thing where if you're a woman on the bill, you're the only woman, so you often don't actually get to work together. But there's heaps of us, particularly in Australia, we've got some of the most amazing comics full stop, but also female comics doing really original, cool stuff. We read before in, I think it was the same interview that I was reading, that you had said that in some of your lowest moments you were creating some of your best comedy. And it sounds like such a comedic trope. Is that is that true? Do you still stand by that, that you do tend to kind of create the best material from your low moments? I can do. I think you'll find this is very generalising and probably going to upset people that comedians are generally broken in some way. You've got to have something missing to desire the validation from strangers and have a, I think most, and this, most of the comics you'll talk to have got, you know, I, it's very rare you'll meet a comedian who was the popular kid in school. I don't think I know a single one. I, I definitely have found some of the funniest stuff from darker stuff, which is partially why it took me so long to, I think, get the help that I needed with mental health stuff because I was worried that I wouldn't be funny, like I didn't want to iron out the kinks of who I am because what if that's what makes me funny and, you know, interesting and stuff. But it doesn't. Happy to report, you don't have to be miserable to be creative. Yeah, I don't think you need to be. I don't think I need to be, but I can't deny that, yeah, some stuff has come out of those times. But it's also stuff's come out of when I'm happy. Some stuff's just come out of I've just seen someone weird in a shop. (laughs) You know, that's got nothing to do with how I'm feeling. Sometimes it's just undeniably something will walk in front of me and I'll go, that's funny, and I'll talk about that. I want to know, I think something that 
Zara and I have grappled with as the podcast has become bigger is what we are comfortable and not comfortable with sharing about our personal lives. And I think everyone goes through that when you are in a public position. And I wonder, did you have to have that process at some stage to be like, you know what, the stuff I shared when I was on a smaller stage in front of a smaller audience, I'm not comfortable sharing that with hundreds of thousands of people anymore. (laughs) It's a bit late now. Look, I just had to not worry about that. Yeah, because my career is the embarrassing things that happen to me. And I learned very early on doing our shows that you've got to give people the whole story. If you, you know, if you're giving them a story, you owe them the whole story. And people connect with when they can tell that you're giving them a secret or something real. And is it weird having strangers know that about you? Yes. This is what is a bizarre paradox is I will say stuff to thousands of strangers that I would never say to a person one-on-one ever. And it's weird to me that people know. It's like I forget they're listening. Like every time you say, we were, you said, I freak out because I'm like, I have <laughs> this could be anything. This shit I said in the past that, you know, I look at now and I'm like, oh, gosh. But you can just be, you know, that thing where they're like, you can't get caught in a lie if you just always telling the truth. Like I'm just, I just say everything. There's some stuff that I've thought twice about. So in my last show, there's stuff that I talked about in that. If you'd asked me five years ago, I would have like gone, I would never share that. And I did think about it and go, once this is out there, it's out and it could get some backlash. But then I waited up and thought that it's actually more important to me that it's out there. Out of context, it sounds weird. Watch the show. It's on Amazon Prime. Um, <laughs> yeah, give them the plug instead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there's some stuff where it is weird knowing that strangers know really intimate stuff about me and I don't want them to bring it up with me. That is such a thing, saying yeah. something publicly when it's really personal to you and you're sharing it because you think people will relate and people will find something helpful. It needs to be the unwritten, unspoken rule that if you put it out in the public, please don't come up to me one-on-one and talk to me about it. I'm not comfortable with one-on-one. I'm comfortable with one to unlimited number and yeah. never back. <laughs> yeah, you must find that because you're not scripted. You know, you just – and that's how it's got to be is to be able to be open and say what comes to mind. But it's scary in this world. Did you read that um, So You've Been Publicly Shamed? Mm-hmm. It's, a book. it's amazing. Just about how we can just latch onto stuff and love the sort of mob mentality. And so, yeah, I'm – paranoid that I'll something will be taken out of context and I'll be destroyed for it but you just can't you can't live like that you've got to trust that your intentions are right and that it'll come it'll be taken in the way it's intended but yeah never I don't want people to bring it up (laughs) what's it like standing in front of a crowd of like hundreds if not thousands of people and actually making them laugh like what's the joy like when you realize that something that you've carefully and meticulously crafted in your bedroom or at your own desk is making people happy it's really cool it's a really long road to get there like every show that I've done that I've liked that I've really liked or that has ended up a good show wasn't at the start (laughs) you know there's no guarantee so everything that's worked in front of a crowd has also not worked my favorite is doing my hour shows sort of midway in the middle of the run where I've now know that it works so I'm relaxed in it and I know that the people who are there have come to see me on purpose so I know they're there to see me because if you're doing a club gig they don't know who's on they just turn up and you're just doing 20 minutes so 
I don't like having to fight to turn people around who hate me. I, I know it's real selfish, but it's easier. I like playing to people who already have an idea of what they're going to get or know me, whatever. But it feels great. My, my favourite is in an hour show when you have earned like a callback, something that you sort of share together that is a real, that you can really relax into a, a laugh. Having said that, I don't get a lot of applause breaks. I'd love a few more. I never get to sit. I think <laughs> who have a beer and they get to drink it. And I always have a beer on stage with me and I rarely get to drink it because I'm in my mind, I'm like, keep going. Just because if there's a gap, you might lose them. I, I sort of run. I run through my shows. Like, let's go, let's go. So it feels great. It feels it feels lovely. There's rooms that are better. I love my room, which is the comedy theatre in Melbourne. So it's like it's like a thousand people, but they feel really close. They sort of stack mm. on top of each other. So it feels intimate. I'll tell you the first real laugh I ever remember getting, which was in my first gig, that raw gig, the first like actual big laugh, because it was the only sort of joke joke that I'd written, just felt like a slap in the face, but in like a good way, like getting hit by a wave, like because you just say a thing and then bah, just this like wall of sound and it's like, what was, what was that? It's, it's really cool to get it. It sounds frightening and invigorating all at once. Yeah. It just because it's a mass, it's a group of strangers. And if I'm having a bad gig, this is terrible. My mind goes, if this turned into a mob, they would totally win in a fight. <laughs> like the only thing keeping this civil is the microphone, is this conceit. <laughs> but there's a lot of them. Even if there's 10 people in the crowd, I'm like, they could rush the stage and <laughs> I'd be in big trouble. They haven't. But it's great. But I love also there was this when I lived in London for like five years and there was all sorts of weird gigs and my friend ran a gig in a cinema. So you had comics at the start where you stood in front of the movie screen and then they played a film mm. afterwards and it was so great and everyone had popcorn. I remember being on stage and I've got everyone, like 400 people, to buy a piece of popcorn at the same time and it was the greatest. Like just like just for, just the, the, what you can do with groups, that was a really nice moment. And my first gig at the Opera House, I made them all, I think, do a grunt or do a pop or something. I don't know. <laughs> the power you have in that moment is, like, exciting and terrifying. Like, if you can make 400 people bite into popcorn at the same time, imagine <laughs> the things you can do. Yeah, it's weird. You've just got to act. Like, whenever I see people, because I'm so scared of crowd work, I don't usually do it, but you've got to be so confident to get people to do something, to just go, hmm. all right, this is what we're doing. But I don't, I don't usually do crowd work because I'm so nervous that they won't go on with it. Like I'll, yeah. I'll back yeah. out, I'll bail out of it too quickly. Coming up after the break, Celia tells us what it's like navigating mental health in a pandemic where her mind is constantly idle. But first, a word from today's sponsor. It's so ironic that we're talking about this kind of stuff because. I mean, the Melbourne Comedy Festival, if 2020 went the way that was planned to go, would have run out. Comedians would have been doing their stand-up comedy. It would have been such a hub in the city where Sarah and I are based and you live. And I'm wondering, what happened to your 2020 plans when the world turned weird? Were you scheduled to be at the Comedy Festival this year? I know you do one year on, one year off. Is that right? I sort of... It's just dependent on if I've got a show. So this year mm. we're my second year off, mainly because of Rosehaven. Luke McGregor and I do a show that we in Tassie that we also write. So writing it, filming it, and editing it takes about a year. So I have no, I had no show. So I wasn't going to be doing a show anyway. And because I did a little show called Dancing with the Stars, which I'm, I mean, if there's, 
I'm mad at the pandemic for lots of reasons, but the main one is that it means no one is talking about the fact that I won Dancing with Stars. Complete <laughs> bullshit. Anyway, so I was always going to be having a break. Now I was going to be on. I was going to go on holiday. I wanted to go to New York and watch musicals on Broadway. Instead, I'm in Perth in a kitchen. But look, um, but I so I didn't miss out on doing festival. But all of my friends did. Like heartbreaking. The Melbourne Comedy Festival, as you know, is. It's the start of the festival. So as a comic, you work your whole year working up an hour and that's when you sell it. That's when you make all of your money for the year and all of these people having these shows ready to go and then it just be gone. Our industry is gone. Like entertainment, theatre, just where dancers, there's nothing and we'll probably be one of the last ones to come back. And what's so frustrating is the thing that we would normally do in this situation to help each other is put on it event like the one thing we can't do to help is the one thing we would do and can do Mm. so I'm utterly devastated for the community but we'll be back what we just need people to come back twice as hard when we are back and also they're finding a way I watched the zoom of Helen Badu I don't know if you know Anne Edmonds alter ego did a live zoom show two nights Friday and Saturday and it was amazing so, like, comedy finds a way. Like, this is finding a way. You know, there's we're still around. I'd rather this than the world's appetite for comedy stopped, you know. We're not, not doing comedy because no one wants to see it. We're not doing it because we're not allowed right now because it's not healthy. It's fine. Surely the appetite's going to come back stronger. I mean, I can't imagine a more important time for people to laugh. In an totally. interview- Can you imagine the corona pun titles for next year's <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, my God, it's going to be corona saturation. Uh, Celia, in an interview, you also said, I don't have a regular job. Everything I do is a one-off, and I'm very aware that it can stop at any point. I imagine a lot of creatives feel exactly the same. They live kind of job to job, and it's anxiety-inducing at the best of times, but not least in the middle of a pandemic. What's that anxiety like? And I guess on behalf of your industry, how is the industry coping with that anxiety too? Just speak on behalf of everyone. (laughs) a lot of pressure to speak on behalf of my industry. Look, it's difficult also because I haven't been in the rooms for a while because, as I mentioned, doing Dance with the Stars and then we're in Tassie. But I can say I know that it's really hard. Like this is an industry where you just can't take two months off work, you know, and at this time when they missed festival. So I, I, don't, I don't know. Everyone's just, I think, just trying to get hang on and ride it out until we can come back. And as I say, like I've been asked before, what, what can people do? I think if people have stuff for sale, buy it. The people have got albums online, all that kind of stuff. But I think the only other thing is, yeah, when it is back, if you were going to, if you normally would buy one ticket at Comedy Festival, buy five. Like go where the comedians are the first ones at the front doing benefit gigs and charity gigs to raise money for all of this stuff, you know, it was at the beginning of Dance with the Stars, we were doing it, you know, did a bushfire fundraiser at the Palais, which was amazing, which sold out in a minute. Isn't that incredible? Like we're, we're there. So just supporting them when they, when, when we can come back. But yeah, it's, I think there's a lot of comedians going, maybe I could be a plumber. I don't know. Like you just, you have to be versatile anyway, all the time, which is why I say I go from job to job. Everything's a one-off. I'll try anything. Like, so through this, I've ended up doing like I used to write columns for a while. I've written jokes for other people. I've written scripts. I've done, you know, editing. You just, you do everything that you can because it's work. So I think there'll be a lot of comics 
pivoting, as is the word, or just trying to find other things that they can do to get through. This might sound a bit like a niche question, but I am curious. You touched on before how you have struggled with mental health problems in the past, and I'm someone who has a anxiety disorder and also bouts of depression. And I have found this stretch of just time where my mind is so idle all the time to be really a struggle. And I'm wondering, as someone who I'm not sure what your mental health battles in the past have been, but someone who has battled, how have you found this quiet solitude? Because I've found that some people are really enjoying it who have had mental health problems and other people are really struggling with it. Yeah, it's not good. It's not, it's not good for me. <laughs> I Silence and stillness is my bad place. That's a bad, bad time. Bad, bad, bad. So I am doing things like this. So this is, unfortunately, I shouldn't let this get out there. But right now, anyone who asks me to do anything, I'm doing it. I've got to pack my day. <laughs> I'm packing them. I'm doing a lot of birthdays. A lot of people are going, can you send a birthday message? Sure, I can. That'll, that'll, <laughs> that'll eat up five minutes. Let's go. Just got to make it through to night time. Yeah, I find it, I'm finding it difficult, but it's just about not giving in to that. I need to be as active as possible. You know, putting on day clothes, writing lists, need a list. Even if it's just eat food, tick it off, feels like we're still doing something. Because it's also now it's difficult to plan ahead. Normally to have some stability, I don't know what it's like for you, but for me I need to have things to look forward to or working on a bigger something because otherwise everything feels kind of pointless and that's a bad place for me as well. But it's difficult because you don't know. We can't tell how long this will be or when what it will be like, so it's hard to plan things for the future. So small little projects, I've been cooking and that kind of stuff. So I'm doing good because I know this but it's like and I said this on a on, a, on another thing don't think I'm retrying material on you but really <laughs> how dare you regurgitate content <laughs> I know sorry but it was for a mental health awareness thing it's like you know with children you need to just continually give them activities because they get bored every five minutes it's like that but I'm 37 and I'll try anything I've got coloring books I'll try and cook a thing I'll sweep I'll just move stuff from that side to over there so it's just about puzzles I'm doing ordering a lot of stuff online that takes up a bit of time as well but yeah how are you so are you keeping busy is that your yeah well I think what happened initially is I've always known that my anxiety is very tied to how busy I am and I know that's probably not very healthy but my psychologist knows and she doesn't seem to be too concerned in that the busier I am the better my anxiety is managed and I think getting a puppy we got a puppy on Friday has been wonderful because he is such a handful. He's like all over the house, wants to chew me, wants to chew every piece of furniture I own. That has been the best anxiety cure because I don't have time to overthink. I have to be chasing after this little baby dog. So that's been good. Getting a puppy's been good. Weird. Yeah. So strange, right? A puppy (laughs) makes you feel better. Bizarre. Speaking of joy and like little things, or actually your puppy is tiny, Michelle, so I will say little things that spark joy. So where are you finding pockets of joy at the moment? What does spark joy for you when everything feels quite confusing? What sparks joy? Animal Crossing? I'm playing Animal Crossing on Switch with Luke McGregor. Not with Luke McGregor. Obviously he has his own island, but we talk on the phone while we're playing Animal Crossing and we visit each other's islands. His island is called Tasmania. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) I know. My island is called Kokomo. I don't know how old you are, but we're down in Kokomo. So I do that. I am here with my my boyfriend lives here, which is why I'm here. And that's something to be, We, you know, usually I'm in Melbourne. So usually we've gone from long distance seeing each other once a month for a weekend to lockdown. So being grateful 
for that. And even though, you know, we're having some time apart as well, but that's that's been really nice. Um, Snacks. Snacks. I love snacks. I find a lot of joy in cheese. And I'm also exercising, which is not on brand for me. Um, Can I ask what kind of cheese? Because Zara and I have very different tastes in cheese and I need to know, do you sit on the soft side or the hard side? Oh, a bit of both, but generally the soft generally a camembert but same with wine in that you'd think how often I'd eat it I would know which ones I like and which ones I don't but I never do I go in and I go that's round I'll grab that and sometimes I get home and I'm like oh this is the one I don't like I'd never just write it down once just write down once which one you want but I also I'll have a bit of goat's cheese in there sometimes but also a bit of heart bit of cheddar Smoked cheddar. Also my flatmate who is in Melbourne we watch RuPaul's Drag Race because it's the new season comes out episode each week so we watch that together on the phone that's beautiful I want to know what do you hope that you savor from this period when life eventually goes back to normal fingers crossed that it goes back hopefully sooner rather than later what will you look back on this time with and feel positive about or hope that you take a lesson from it oh I don't know because as I said I'm the same in that I'm very my happiness, and I'm not proud of this, is tied to how busy I am and I'm creating stuff and I can point to that and go, look what I made. So I'm not good with downtime because it, there's a part of it that feels wasted. Like, well, this is a pointless time. This is a waste and it shouldn't be like that. It should be downtime can be good. And so I'm trying to appreciate that I needed this rest because I haven't had a break in forever. It's a double-edged sword, isn't it, of like trying to enjoy something you you really know you need, but you don't know how to navigate. Celia, in a recent interview with the Gladstone Observer, you said there will come a time when we look back on this and joke about what's happening. Not now, of course, but there will be a time. I can't wait for when we can look back at this time and say, look at what we got through together. What has the last sort of six or seven weeks shown you about the human spirit? Oh, so I'm just being impressed with myself. I'm like, that's not a bad quote. <laughs> we did read it and we were like, that's very poignant. <laughs> no idea. I have no memory. The number of times someone said to me something and I go, who said that? And they go, you did. I'm like, oh, cool. Um, well, this is the thing. As much as I'm like there'll be a time when we'll laugh at this, we're laughing at it now. Like it's it's a weird phenomenon where it's the first time in my lifetime where something's happened that has affected the whole world at the same time, which is exactly what you want for jokes. So everyone is having the same experience. So your jokes, everyone will get the joke because everyone knows. Do you know what I mean? Like if I went to Pluto and did a COVID-19 joke, they wouldn't get it because they know what I'm talking about. But here, every, everyone knows. Like often they will You're universal. You could take it anywhere. You could take it anywhere. But like there's often there's jokes that you could only do in Melbourne, like, you know, you know, we've got a pie face. If you go to the UK, they don't know what you're talking about. Can't make pie face jokes. COVID-19 is fertile ground because everyone is experiencing it. And also because everyone's experiencing it, it's extra funny because you're like, yes, that whole it's funny because it's true is is a thing because you, you agree and you go, oh, yes, you're taking something that I'm experiencing and you're flipping it in a, in a way that I hadn't thought of it like that. So I'm, I'm amazed at how versatile people are being in terms of pivoting, as I say, and making new careers for themselves on content and how creative everyone is being and beautiful everyone's being. There's all of the instances of people doing like the chalk on the side sidewalk and keeping people entertained. And I think there's been a lot of demonstrations of really incredible human generosity and just loveliness. Yeah, there's still some dumb to go to the beach, but... <laughs> 
we can go now, it's fine. Um, but I think I underestimated two things. Like it seems like it's going better than we thought it was going to. At the start it seemed a lot scarier. It seems like we're sort of on the right path. And at the beginning it seemed like people were going to behave worse, like all of the toilet paper stuff, all of that, and that seemed scarier. But it seems like every day the the stories of people doing good deeds is sort of outweighing the which is very heartening. Very heartening indeed. Celia, one of the questions that we are asking everyone who comes on the In Isolation episodes with us is one that is very divisive. Everyone has a different opinion on this and I want yours. Mm -hmm. Do you think there will be any lasting changes to the way we live when isolation and COVID-19 ends or come to some kind of resolution? I'm kind of hoping that handshakes don't come back. Yes, much as I love them, I really like them because women usually don't get them. Like usually I'm in a group of men and all the men get handshakes and then they come to me for some weird hug kiss thing and I hate it. So I always put my hand out first and it's like, bam, I'll have one of those is usually what I say. But now we've got an opportunity to just scrap all of them and have a non-gendered kind of non-touching greeting. I don't know what that is, whether it's like we can choose. It could be it could be the finger dance eyes. I would personally like a deep bow, like a very a deep, deep bow. That's good. Everyone needs a stretch. I'm not stretching enough. That's good for your hamstrings. Bow. I love a little awkward wave, just a, a tiny awkward, awkward wave. You a squat though because then you're getting half your exercise out just when you sit and just, <laughs> just do a bit of a squat. Even like crab hands or something. There you go. Yeah, crab hands. Who would love this? How's it going? Oh, my God. We should pitch <laughs> these out to the world, to Australia. <laughs> But it's it's serious that they say handshakes might not come back. So mm. so it's got to be replaced with something. Otherwise, we can't all not nods at each other. Winks, maybe wink with a new handshake. What about success? I one thing we've always asked people when they come onto these episodes, well before we started doing them remotely, was what is your definition of success? And I want to know how you define success in your own life and in your own career. For me, it's you want to look back. On stuff and be proud of it. I used to think it was, I always thought if you were like, imagine if you're like Tom Cruise or someone and in your house you just had a shelf with all your films. You know what I mean? Or all you, if you're Stephen King, I'm a huge Stephen King fan. Like he must, just all of his books, just like, I wrote that. I wrote all of them. They're, they're my books. So it used to, it's, it's about a body of work because I have no goal. It's about success for me is just still working, just always doing something that's creatively challenging and a bit scary. So as much as I hate that a lot of my career is terrifying because I'm always doing something I've never done before, if it's not terrifying, I don't want to do it. It's, it's taking risks. It was Will Anderson said this. I don't know if he said this to me or on a podcast, but he's like his favourite artists are the ones who just keep redefining themselves. And for me, I, I was so scared of being locked in a little box. You know, if you do a certain type of show that people think that's all you do. So for me, it's about always trying to just pop up where people wouldn't expect me, like doing a drama or a reality show or whatever, so that I'm I'm always keeping myself engaged. And, yeah, it means people will like some stuff more than others, but I'm always trying something new and different. So I'm a bit nervous I'm going to run out of things. <laughs> I'm not nervous at all. I think you'll keep creating incredible things. But that's what I love about you in that you don't seem to discriminate. Some of your content's really highbrow and then you're on Dancing with the Stars and killing it there. Like I love that about you and I love that about people in the public eye when they do both and they show so many different sides of themselves when they do that. 
Yeah, well, Dancing with the Stars is the only one I've always wanted to do. I always said if they ever ask me, I'll do it because you're actually doing a thing. And as a comedian, I'm like, if I'm terrible at this, it's funny. uh, I'm a celebrity. I would never do Big Brother. I have no interest in being a personality. I always want to have a product. I want to do a thing or make a thing. But it's weird. It does mean you do have people who like the stuff that you do more than other stuff. For example, I had a man come up to me after, I think it was a Rosehaven live read, I don't know, opened with, I've got to tell you. Turns out he didn't have to tell me this. But I've got to tell you. Oh, Utopia. She's not sure. Love it. Such a great fan. Love Utopia. So great. You're so great. Rosehaven. Brilliant. Love it. Love it. Something else. So great. You stand up. Not for me. I'm like, oh my God. That's fine. But you don't, you don't, it's, that's, it's, so I, I sometimes reference it in my stand-up because if someone came to my stand-up show who'd only known me from Utopia, they're going to get a real shock. You know, I'm talking about fingering a lot more than I am infrastructure. They're like, why is that nice girl on the ABC being so <laughs> But, you know, and I, and I, I, I'm that kind of person. Like I love, I like some filthy humour, but I also love a pun, love a pun. I'd do way more highbrow stuff if I was smarter, but I don't, I can't, I can't, I don't understand it. I leave the political stuff to other people. Like Tom Ballard, oh, my God, he's brilliant. Oh, Oh, he does some good stuff. Celia, we are finishing every episode in the same way and we're asking people for their recommendations. I guess we wanted to leave the listeners with some stuff they could eat or consume or think about after each chat. The first thing we want to ask you is what are you shamelessly wasting the most time on at the moment, whether it be books, TV shows, podcasts, what what are you consuming? What have I wasted? My, oh, well, Animal Crossing. Of course. I'm playing a lot of Animal Crossing. So my, as I said, my boyfriend, we, I, have, I brought my Nintendo Switch because I'm a grown woman and I'll buy what I want and I worked hard to buy myself a Nintendo Switch. Anyway, so I go on the island in the morning and then he's got a game which is Farm Simulator and he goes in the far, on the farm in the afternoon. But if he did not go on the farm in the afternoon, I would probably still be on the island in the afternoon. <laughs> Who thought this would be adulthood, guys? You just make it what you want. It's pretty great. I think the biggest lie yeah. is as a kid, you're like, when I'm a grown-up, I'll know stuff. No one knows. No. No, we're all just playing The Sims or Animal Crossing. What's a food or recipe that you would recommend to those listening? I mean, you gave us some snacks before, but what's your go-to comfort meal? I've started cooking because I'm bored. And I message my friend who knows everything. You know how you have a friend who knows everything? Like you're like, yeah. I need a pizza restaurant that's the best of gluten-free within 500 metres, text back immediately. And I went, mate, it's finally happened. I need to start, I need to cook. What you got? Zucchini slice, like a zucchini fritter thing. It's brilliant, real easy, and you trick yourself into eating vegetables. So it's grated zucchini. It's basically just like a big omelette thing. And you sneak vegetables in there. And so I've made two pans of that. Yum. There you go. And the last one is a little less frivolous than the old zucchini slice. What is one mantra or rule for life that you are trying to live by or have lived by in the past? Oh, so my my motto, this is in the standard show, this was about 2017. This is the last time I had a very clear motto was you'll see, you'll all see. (laughs) Because someone made me feel bad about myself and I chose to use spite to motivate myself through that year. And that was very helpful for that year. Um, right now, it's difficult. Right, right now, I think it's like a mix between get up and do it. You know, that's that's mm-hmm. just get up, put a bra on, mate, put some shoes on, and pretend you're going. <laughs> just get up and do it. Try, just do 
something is kind of it. I think I don't think you need to be. I think there's a lot of people acting like they're really productive and everything's great and it's fine. It's not. It's really weird. Everything's weird and hard and that's okay. So, but just if you do anything, you you you're just doing it, mate. We're all just doing the best we can. So get up, do it. Celia, you are such a delight. Thank you for joining us. It has been such a joy to sit down with you and I am feeling better. Thank you for filling my time. I'd be an anxious wreck right now if I was just sitting around doing nothing. So thank you for coming on the podcast. I cannot believe you chose me over a puppy. What are you doing, mate? <laughs> he is crying in the next room. I don't know if that's oh, any of the audio. <laughs> I'm hearing him. Oh, what a little um, thing. Thank you so much. I feel like I really hogged the conversation because I was just, uh, is this no. how it's supposed to go? Oh, yes, <laughs> of course that's how it's okay, supposed yeah. to go. We get enough airtime as it is. (laughs) So thank you for bringing such light to us at the moment too. We've just had the best time. So thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Celia Pacola. If you want more from Celia, watch her new comedy special, All Talk, on Amazon Prime. You can also follow her on Instagram at Celia underscore Pacola. If you enjoyed this chat, we recommend listening to our In Conversation episodes with Clementine Ford and Tanya Hennessy. They are such strong, funny, intelligent women, just like Celia is. I will leave the links to both of those chats in our show notes. If you want to support Zara and I and our wonderful producer, Annabelle, the best way to do that is to tell a friend about our show word of mouth is how we keep bringing you guys new content every week so we would love for you to recommend this episode to someone else who you think might enjoy it thank you so much guys we'll be back in your ears on monday Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.